Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Bonesaw Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? <laughs> Doing the Bonesaw. I, I wish know, I had sorry, like but... I should have made a little paper mache cardboard saw with the foil on it and everything that would have been seemed huge. like it would have been a lot of work. I know but... too much work. Yeah, too lazy for that. But how's life? How's everything going? Everything's good. I'm having a, a very exciting week. I wanted to talk to you about this as a fellow homeowner. Now you'll appreciate this, I think. So I'm playing a bit of Russian roulette this week mm. with the hot water heater. Oh, now what do you know? I don't know how much you know about hot water heaters. Okay. But apparently, nothing has changed in like 100 years. Like when these things go, it's catastrophic. It's like no other appliance. I actually don't understand why they make them like this. Mm. So when a hot water heater is ready to expire, which is usually around a decade, I guess, right? Decades worth of constant use. It doesn't just stop working, apparently. It just explodes all over the house, hopefully, hopefully in your basement hopefully in your unfinished basement. So there's no other appliance or household device that's designed to take the rest of the house with it when it goes. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no... So you you basically have to, if you want to avoid any kind of fallout, you have to sort of anticipate and replace it before that happens. And I'm not even sure... I'm sure we have plenty of plumbers out there that could speak better to this, but... Two things sort of disturb me about the whole hot water heater thing. A, it seems to not have, even the, the rapid evolution of technology, nothing's changed with hot water heaters. They still fail catastrophically and flood everything when they go, which is really weird. They can't sort of evolve that technology. It's almost like they won't. Right. And the other thing is you have to just kind of pay out before something goes wrong. It's not with a car you know, like with a car, you, you wait till something goes wrong and you pay for said, you know, failure or the stove goes, it doesn't, you know, burn down the entire house. The dishwasher doesn't launch plates out at you when it's ready to blow. You know, it's the hot water heater just fails. So right now I feel like I don't take hot showers. You know that. Yeah. So like is, I don't take is... burning hot, long showers, you know, like most people do. I'm not, I'm not into it. I don't, I don't like the hot shower thing. So my kids have been telling me like, dad, the hot water heaters, the hot water is not lasting as long as it normally does. So that's the first red flag, right? The other thing is when we bought the house 10 years ago, we had the people replace it. You know, our inspector said this hot water heater is old. You should really ask for a new one in the contract. We did. They replaced it, I think, to the tune of like, it's not, it's not a huge cost. It's a, it's somewhat negligible, I guess. Mm. You know, it's like a grand, you know, anywhere from 900 to $1,500 yeah, yeah. to replace the thing. So, you know, it's not, it's not, but at the same time, it's not that dollar amount that you really want to pay if you could avoid it. Sure. So I feel like every day, you know, the first thing I do when I open up the house in the morning, I turn off the lights, you know, I I open up the shades and everything and I open the basement door and look if my basement's flooded. So I should probably just (laughs) replace it at this point. Yeah, I think you can, I think you can afford it. But it's fun. uh, But it's also kind of fun. Yeah, I I totally understand that. You want to get not only maximum use out of it, but you also want to, yeah, get it, get it, bring it to the brink. 
Right. It's like sitting at a table in, in Vegas. You want to bring it to the brink. I totally <laughs> Once you get the new one, then the, the clock starts, starts ticking on that new one. So as long as I could push that off, I feel like, I feel like it's kind of an adrenaline rush right now. <laughs> yeah. That may speak to the doldrums of my life. Sure. I, no, well, as I, well. I get that as a homeowner now, though. I totally understand what you mean. And uh, by the way, I apologize if any noise is coming through. It, it might periodically. They're working in my backyard right now on my pool. We can't. Oh. Just whenever it can get done at this point. <laughs> just do whatever you got to do. Just yeah, do they're, it. They're, they're There's no bad time. So we're close now, which is cool. Oh, good. So, yeah. So nothing new really going on over in my life. Just it's a very busy week over here. We're actually, I mean, not that it's important into the ultimate run of this show, but we are recording two of our shows this week, which we usually never do anymore because we missed a week due to tech issues. So we, we wanted did. to get all caught up. So this episode will go live, I think, somewhere in its interstitial space. And or maybe this one will go live Friday and then the next one will go live in some interstitial space. But we'll be all caught up. So expect to see two episodes uh, one after the other. Maybe <laughs> double play, double yep. play, my friends, double play. Let's right. go. All right. So Dave, right. today's topic is a fan voted topic. And remember, you can support our show on Patreon, patreon.com slash last media, like more than 12,000 of you do. And they voted on and they vote. You vote every every month, of course, and you submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas as you do. But this time they voted on the film Spider-Man, the 2002 film starring. I'm going to say starring Willem Dafoe, but starring Tobey Maguire. <laughs> of course it is. Ke- Kirsten Dunst and all the rest. And it was fun to watch it. I, I actually have memories of I think memories of seeing this movie in the theater reminds me of you we got to talk about that because i'm i'm maybe confusing two memories in this regard okay it's got heavy post 9 11 vibes in fact and we'll talk about it the original trailer to this movie had the twin towers prominently in it which is super fun when you go back and i mean it's horrifying now but it's fun to go back and look and see like this was can you imagine how how much time and energy they wasted on that shot and and they're and then they're like these motherfucking al-qaeda terrorists (laughs) have to yank it uh, so there's a lot of cool stuff involving this film that I want to talk about. And I also I like this movie. I I, I think that this is I like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. I think this movie is really good. I know that people blame this movie for doing what it has done, which is kind of the embryonic state of like, you know, do we have something here with comic book films? And they tried many times after this. It, it, it took, I think, six more years for them to really get into the MCU itself. But this was a starting point. It's also interesting to think about how this movie, you know, how Spider-Man is relegated to Sony Pictures and the deal with Marvel over that and how it's kind of seems like a deal in perpetuity as long as they keep exercising the right and all yeah. that. And that Marvel was so close to bankruptcy and so fucked up for a long time that they were just selling their, their the rights to their to their, um, to their IP. And as far as I understand, they needed to be exercised. So like some of them have expired. Like I think Fantastic Four is back with Marvel, but things like X-Men you know, Fox keeps milking that because I think if they stop, then the deal expires. And that's right. Sony with Spider-Man, I think it's the same thing. Like you just have to keep making Spider-Man movies. And I think they're much more uh, willing to deal with Marvel, like the Tom Holland Spider-Man. Is it the Tom Holland Spider-Man? I think is in is in like the MCU. Yes. Which was like not even thinkable. Remember Spider-Man? I remember Sp- I didn't see any of the uh, the Avengers movie, but Spider-Man appearing in them, I think, was like a really big deal. Yeah. Because no one expected that was going to be. So Way there's a lot to that. get into here with this film. There is. There and definitely so I'm, is. I'm just curious, like, what, where do you want to start? What did you think of Spider-Man? 2002 Spider-Man. I loved this movie. I really love this movie. You're, you're right. There's so much to say about it. I mean, first of all, 
yeah, seeing it back in the day with you. We're also in that period of the early aughts where we kind of tend to be a lot on knockback lately. We just finished the Lord of the Rings film trilogy as well mm. around the same time period. It's mm. always kind of a good, seems like a good barometer to go back a couple of decades for the litmus test of how well things hold up. You know, take it, you know, a couple of, a couple of batches of 10 years, 18, 19, 20 years. It always seems like a good sort of time to go back and see how well things maintain the test of time. So this will be, this will be really fun for that. And, you know, the 2002 Spider-Man, it's really interesting to go back, as you said, to pre-Disney Marvel, you know, in this period, Mm -hmm. you know, the pre-present day MCU. This was also one of the first live action superhero films that I really, really loved. I really enjoyed it. Probably saw it in the theater a couple of times. One of the earlier DVDs that I owned which was, you know, which is a really kind of a fun memory. I almost broke out the DVD to watch it. I ended up watching it on Amazon, I think. Just rented it on Amazon. But it was really fun to go back and watch. Mm. And, you know, the thing is, too, with this movie call, with Spider-Man, they've rehashed it a bunch of times, right? We have the Mark Webb slash Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man films that came a little after. And then, of course, now in the proper MCU, we have the Tom Holland vehicles but i loved going back and looking at this you know we could talk about toby Maguire. we could talk about the actors that were big during this time willem dafoe kirsten dunst and others and also sam raimi you know he's kind of an interesting dude in film and kind of contemporary contemporary modern modern parlance because he's directing the doctor or he has directed the doctor strange movie which is coming out for for the mcu proper next year which I saw mention that Tobey Maguire is in that as well, which is interesting. I, if he is, is he? it must be a bit part of. Uh, oh, that's kind of cool. Either either it was a mistake where I read it, or it was some sort of bit part because he's not listed with the actors proper or the main actors actresses in the film. But you know, there's just so much to say about it. But I loved going back and watching it because I really do still enjoy it. I think there's a lot to say. It also kind of came before sort of the mandate came down where live action superhero films had to be dark. I mean, certainly Deadpool flew in the face of that a little bit, but others with the earlier X-Men films and of course the Dark Knight trilogy and others, it really sort of came down that, you know, in order to be a serious film, it's got to be treated in a certain way. And this was really more campy and fun. And you could probably say that about the whole Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man trilogy, but it's nice to start the conversation with this one. And I think this one is also my favorite of the three. So, and there's a lot of fun, you know, a lot of fun things to say about it. It's definitely a product of its time, but I think it still holds up pretty well, you know, you know, interesting, or I should say, amazingly. Yeah, amazing, as the word is bandied (laughs) about in the movie a little bit as well. So... I, well, let me start here. There's a funny little thing we got from the audience. As, as you know, the audience writes in. We let you guys know what the topics are, et cetera. And we kind of parse through that. Let you let you to uh, dictate what we talk about Absolutely. in some respect. Mr. Awesome1234 wrote in and said, I saw this for my fifth grade birthday party and I cried when Uncle Ben died and all my friends made fun of me. So I just wanted to, to start that out there. But I wanted to begin at an even broader and an even broader sense. My cousin Vinny wrote in. He says, hey, guys, do you remember the original trailer for this movie where Spider-Man traps a getaway helicopter in a web between the two towers? This was one of the first movies where I got a burnt DVD screener and watched it months before it came out. Still saw it in theaters. Just want to say I love the show and the various memories that these topics bring. Thank you. So the Twin Towers being in 
I remember that. I, re- I, I do remember that, especially because it was re- obviously removed from the film. And I think people were curious if it was going to be. And I think it was obvious that it was. There was plenty of time for them to take that out. But do you remember the time leading up to this film? Because I, I vaguely do. I, I, this movie came out when I was in 12th grade. So the lead up to it was, was and it came out in the spring, I think. So the lead up to it was my early 12th grade, 11th grade, summer after 11th grade, etc. And I do remember being kind of excited about this. Now, I was reflecting when I was watching this film that this was during the edge of the time when I was seeing everything in the theater. And I was noting to Micah that I feel like I I saw, and we've said this on the show, like from 1993 or 1994 to 2002-ish, I saw like everything. I, I really do have like this almost complete catalog of movie like of big films i've seen i saw everything i mean if you yeah. can imagine if you could imagine at any given time like the four or five biggest movies in the theater i probably had seen like 90 percent of those movies in that time period so this was towards the tail end of that and i really i, I remember being excited going into it and i remember actually having expectations that it was going to be good going into it. do you remember anything about it leading up yeah definitely you know what you're absolutely right about this period a lot of blockbuster big popcorn big budget films and this was a period too where i was kind of right there with you i was seeing everything in the theory you think of you know all the big, the big trilogies right the star wars prequel trilogy you think of lord of the rings trilogy the spider-man films are starting to come out there was a lot of hype around this film coming out and you know the period where the internet was kicking in too where it was like everybody was watching their trailers on the internet which was a big hype machine and i do remember the build up to this film in this period in general like you're right about you know saying that about marvel this was like fire sale pre-liquidation we're just going to prostitute ourselves marvel where it was like they were doing anything just to stay afloat i remember they had a web series at the time like a web cartoon that was really cool like beautiful artwork but it really was horribly animated like this was a really interesting period for marvel you know this was before the mcu was sort of Hmm dictating how franchises should be handled like today, which I think Disney does a brilliant job with the MCU. We always talk about Disney sort of, you know, botching other things like Star Wars or, you know, the other thing, you know, they don't do much with Henson and the other things that they own. But, you know, right now it's, we're in, we're still in the golden era of MCU. I know you haven't seen a lot of those, but a lot of people, you know, nerd them sort of pretty much agrees on that. And this was the beginning. This was, you know, before all that. So it's it's already a fascinating period just to look back on. And, you know, the other thing that is important to note that you already mentioned was the, you know, period that came just after 9-11, especially setting a movie, an important franchise that's historically anchored in New York, representing New York, showing New York on film. This was a big this is a really big deal. And that was part of the hype, you know, especially for people from New York, you know, yeah. that we were, and, and, and they put that into the film yeah, to, uh, I guess, historically now looking back introspectively uh, to a corny degree, but definitely. back then we kind of dug it, you know, yeah. back then we were, we were all in for it. Definitely. America had never been con- as conservative in the modern era as it was in, let's say September of 2001 until, the end of 2005, maybe. I mean, yeah, really I would say that 2006. Sure. Era. Yeah. 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 So people wanted the rah rah American stuff. I mean, even Spider Man ending at the end with the huge American flag. I was, yes. thinking, I was like, this is a little much. And I'm actually, we said this on the show before, but I consider my, I, I mean, I don't consider myself one. I am a patriot, but I find America 
being in, inserted in shit really gratuitous and annoying. And it, it didn't come off that way here. I, I often say that in sports, I find it obnoxious. Yeah. Let's everyone rise and let's honor America. It's like, why? We're about to play a baseball game. Can we just play a baseball game? And like, <laughs> let's honor America. And then it, during the Canadian games, it's when you watch like a hockey game and it's the Islanders versus the Canucks or something. And you have to sit there for both fucking anthems. And I'm just like, why is this being why does it have to be inserted so much into everything? I find it obnoxious. And yet in this movie, I because like I said, you said it's a, it's a piece of history. It's 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 relative to its time. And yeah. it was in production during that. So it wasn't like they had to staple it on later. They really got to kind of think about it because when you think about the film, it came out. Let me look here. Yeah. April, well, May 3rd for general audiences. So that was late in my 12th grade life. But you have to understand that that's also like eight months or so after 9-11. And they had time to kind of be deliberate about what they were going to do. And so they decided to do some of that corny stuff, which which I do appreciate. Yeah. Dig, let me let me ask you this. What do you think about? Peter Parker, I, I was thinking about you, obviously. I mean, I often do when I'm, we're doing these things, but I know I've expressed this in the past. I struggle with watching people be picked on. I don't like it. And the only thing that makes it funnier in this movie is that the adults are in on it or like the, the, the bus drivers in on it. And stuff. <laughs> and it's, so it's like it is so campy and over the top that you don't almost take it seriously. But I don't know. It oh, Peter Parker's story always itches at me a little bit because it, it, it's it's not like Bruce Wayne or something where he sees something tragic, something tragic happens to him. And in fact, when I was watching this film, I was like, holy shit, Peter Parker gets fucked up, like on multiple levels, like on meta levels, on meta of meta levels. And it's really hard and sad because he seems like a really good, nice kid who is already being raised by his aunt and uncle and is already kind of, you know, on, not on third base, like many of his other, you know, smart friends might be. And obviously we see that in Osborne and others, but what do you think about Peter Parker? And of course, the what I think is a, is a kind of a famous performance of him by Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I mean, Peter Parker was always a favorite hero of mine. You know, just in comparing him to the other comic book heroes or just heroes in general, fictional heroes that we grew up with. I had a period as a kid, a brief stint with comic books before I discovered manga in junior high slash high school. Before that, I wasn't really a big comic book guy. I was an animation guy, but not a comic book dude. But I did have a brief flirtation with the Amazing Spider-Man and Iron Man books. And then later on in high school, a little bit with X-Men, with Jim Lee, and pretty much with Jim Lee X-Men. But for Spider-Man, Peter Parker always stood out for me against the other superheroes. You know, he wasn't this muscle-bound god amongst men. He wasn't a proper god like Thor, or he wasn't this overpowered alien character like Superman, or even like an eccentric billionaire with all this money at his disposal to make stuff like, like a Bruce Wayne. He was much more relatable, I think, because of just the relatability of being a young person. And like you said, all of the things that sort of seem to be going wrong in his life. You know, he was orphaned. He's raised by his aunt and uncle. He has a hard time at school. Even the adults at school seem to not, you know, seem to be oblivious to what's going on. He has a crush on the girl next door who doesn't really seem interested dealing with bullies in the school building and just dealing with being the eccentric sort of brain of the school and just being himself and not really able to get, you know, get his sea legs under him, which is a relatable thing for all, mm. all of us. We all go through those, you know, periods of awkwardness and growing up and all of that. 
And you're rooting for him as a result of that, just from the beginning. He's very, and he's, he's just very likable. You know, everything from his cheeky sense of humor to, I think that's also a, th- a thing with Peter Parker that I realized in watching this is not hmm. just the adversity that he's going through, but how he deals with it almost in like a, a way where he rolls with the punches with humor, you know, and he's not just kind of a wise ass later on. He kind of builds up to that sort of persona as he gets, you know, as he gets more sure of himself with his powers and everything. And he, and uh, you know, which just kind of goes hand in hand with growing up, I think, but also just that he kind of deals, seems to deal with his situation um, with humor. And I think that's kind of cool. And I think that makes him very likable. He doesn't feel bad for himself necessarily. And I think Tobey Maguire is a really interesting choice. I still really like him in this role. You know, later on we get Andrew Garfield mm. and Tom Holland. I'm sure there'll be other iterations. Comic books in general, but Spider-Man specifically, there's an evergreen quality to it. There's just a lot of ways to do it. I mean, we talk about, you know, we've already done the show on the Into the Spider-Verse animated Spider-Man film, which is fight me the best not only the best superhero film but the best animated film ever made so it's nice to talk about these lesser spider-man iterations that come after that but you know i think you could just do spider-man for days but i still like toby Maguire's handling of the character and it was interesting because sam raimi he's an interesting dude because i think of him a lot like tim burton you know he comes with a certain camp he comes with a certain sort of built-in style a sort of over-the-top approach to things of course everybody knows him for the evil dead trilogy from you know much earlier in his career and everything like that. He sort of comes with that kind of quality of a quirky filmmaker. And he says that Tobey Maguire came in with a much more understated approach to Peter Parker slash Spider-Man than they were initially fixing to go with. Right. And that Tobey Maguire kind of brought that more staid quality. Now, I think Tobey Maguire sort of crosses it over into a little too sleepy, like a little too calm. If it's a if it's a kid dealing with all this teenage angst, you probably need to see some sort of rumbling beneath the surface. He plays it a little too staid, but I also think that sort of I don't know restraint to the approach grounds the film a little bit because the film is very over the top, fun and campy. Tobey Maguire sort of and a couple other actors in the film too lend a more sort of believable a believability, I would say, to the yeah. role. Yeah. And I, I and I like that. I like that Tobey Maguire brings that in. Plus, I just think he has a very likable quality to him as a person that he brings into the role. I think you could go a lot of different ways with Peter Parker. And we've seen that through all the fictional iter- film iterations, especially. But, you know, I think that the way that he chose to do it or they chose to do it for this sequel of uh, this trilogy of films is one way to go. And I think it still it still works. I still enjoy it. So I agree with much of what you said. First of all, the character of Peter Parker is fun to me. I, I often talk about how I don't like characters with superpowers and I don't like villains with superpowers. But for, for me, Spider-Man has always been appealing because it always kind of seemed like it was on the edge of that. It didn't quite seem like Professor X and the X-Men or something or like where you had like B. Yeah, I know that there's villains like, but you know, it's not Beast or anything or Colossus. It, it just seemed a little, which are cool, but it, it just seemed to me a little bit more, like you said, it, well, not not like you said in terms of his, um, who he is generally, but stayed in just the way Spider-Man is. He gets bit by the radioactive spider. He gets all of these special abilities. I do really like, and I wrote this down in my notes that I wanted to say that we look at the story of Peter Parker's origins as so trite at this point. 
But this was kind of a new thing for a lot of people at the time. And I, looking at it through the lens of that, I, I often wonder like, wow, they, they really couldn't have done it any better. The Asian woman in the lab kind of explaining a very really wise exposition about the different spiders and what they do and how they're combining all these things into a new species and stuff. So really effective use of exposition there. And I, I was I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this fucking Spider-Man origin for the 20 minutes. But then I was like, you know what this is? This was like almost the original Spider-Man origin. When you really think about it, people started comparing the later movies to this and how it handled it. And it reminded me a little bit about how we're, we're starting to get different uh, on the DC side, starting to get some different origin stories with Batman. Like, I don't know if you saw Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, which is a fantastic yeah, film, but so good. But they and I won't spoil it, but you see Bruce Wayne's story in some sliver through his eyes. Right. And and it's awesome because you never see that sliver you never see bruce wayne i mean i don't read the comics maybe you do but in film you never see bruce wayne really struggling as an orphan right living with you know his old old man butler and his parents are dead usually just it 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 advances and so similarly i feel like they have to do different things with peter parker now to make it interesting and they're doing that more with miles morales and who is another wonderful character but i look at it specifically and think you know what man this is this is it this is this is my spy i know because a lot of people wrote in about this i think this is my spider-man now i've never seen the newest spider-man okay and you were saying how you like the next two films in the raimi run which i'm sure we'll get to i don't remember the second one although i'm pretty sure i saw it i definitely didn't see the third one so oh. we're going we're, so we're going into uncharted territory with me there and, and i have to say to the audience a lot of you wrote in about the greater trilogy about where we see this film in it and all that let's save that conversation for after we do the third raimi film we can talk about that Sure. I can't, I can't even speak to that right now. Yeah, that's a good plan. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like, it... I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. What do you think? Well, let me let me back up here. Okay. Uh, we'll talk more about Peter, but let's talk about him through MJ. Gavin Warren wrote into us and said, hey there, brothers Moriarty, longtime listener, first time question asker. I'll be the first to admit that I am a huge shill for all three of the Raimi Spider-Man movies, the second one especially. But my question for you two is, do you buy the emotional connection between MJ and Peter? As much as I love these movies, that's the one aspect I could never fully buy into. It goes from her not giving him the time of day and only talking to him while taking out the trash to being fully 100% in love with him by the end of the film 
maybe I'm reading too much into this, but they didn't really seem to interact all that much aside from the famous upside down kiss and a few scenes in the hospital while visiting Aunt May. I'm just curious how you two feel about their relation, how their relationship was portrayed. Thank you for the amazing podcast over the last few years. Here's to hoping you two eventually get to the two other films in the series. I'm sure we no, will. Thank, thank you. Kevin. Thank you. We, I'm sure we will. So what do you think about Peter's relationship with MJ? I, I feel like this is an important part of the movie too. And I have to say that, and I'm sorry again to the audience for the noise outside, but Kirsten Dunst, I remember getting some issues from people, like some blowback, some smoke about her performance in this. And I found her quite likable, although I must say I found her surprisingly sexualized. I didn't remember it like that. And it's funny because I was six or 17 when I saw this and I was like, I would have been all I would have been all over sexualized anything. So I'm sure I must have noticed something at that time. But I don't I don't remember taking that away from the movie. So that was also interesting about how Peter Parker is kind of buttoned up and like you said, stayed. And MJ is not really portrayed the way I would have seen her as the girl next door so much as like more of a sexual object in this film. Yeah. Her boobs are hanging out sometimes. I mean, in the, in the rain scene, you can just see her tits basically. And she's in the little tiny dress at the, at the, um, when she's wait, waiting tables, I was just surprised by that. So I, I would, but it didn't really bother me because I thought it, it drew up a nicer dichotomy between Peter Parker and MJ. So what did you think about his relationship with her and how that was all drawn about in the movie? Yeah, there's so much to say about this. I mean, first of all, my sort of sentiments go out to the real Spider-Man purists, you know, the people, the guys and girls out there that really know the comic books because they could really speak to this, how it's translated. Of course, it has to be simplified for the big screen. You're in a, you're operating within a two hour time limit. But in the film, I think it's really interesting how they pull it off. I think it's especially interesting for an actress like Kirsten Dunst, who is not really known as a person to do roles that are over. She's known to be an actor with great acting chops, you know, a very skilled actress and not someone who you typically think of as being sexualized in like an American pie type of way. But she kind of is in this film. And I think the character of MJ, again, I don't, I have a limited knowledge from the comics, but in the film, it is interesting. She seems to be this girl next door. You know, via exposition, like you were saying with the lab scene, with the scientist explaining things like it feels very comic booky in that you get exposition about what you need. And again, you're operating in that very claustrophobic time period of two hours. So you have to treat the audience like they never read a comic book in their lives and all sure. that stuff. You have to factor that in. But for MJ, it seems like that what they were saying was, OK, you know, they go back to being very young kids growing up in the same house. They talk about. MJ moving into the neighborhood for the first time and Peter thinking she's an angel and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they go way back to elementary school. You know, Peter has a crush. But what I like about what they do in the role, it seems to me, is that even though she is literally the girl next door, they treat her like maybe she's a little bit loose, right? They treat her like maybe she's a little bit too, she has trouble at home. You know, she doesn't get along with her dad. And maybe, you know, in that sort of daddy issue type of way, she's a little too friendly with the boys type of thing. You know, whether it's Flash or whatever other boys in school, the way she dresses, the argue, the one argument you see her have with her dad, you could see that, you know, even the dad saying like, kind of like, it's terrible, but he's having that argument with her like, you know, you're a slut, you're going to grow up to be just like your mom, whatever type of thing. And you have to read into that a little bit. But you get that it makes it more interesting that Peter's into this girl that maybe is not, 
you know, she's not this pure virginal type character that she is, you know, she has her own problems and she has her, her, her own issues. And she's seems to me that she's acting out in that way, you know, sure. and they also seem to be flirting with this PG 13 rating and they don't want to push it further than that. This movie actually, one thing I realized in watching it, I was like, my 10 year old could pretty much watch this. I mean, there's very little egregious stuff in there. I think later on, Mr. Osborne says something about like, do what you to Harry, like do what you want with her and then get rid of her, that, yeah. that type of thing. But they're very few and far between moments. That and he not, wouldn't even take that as right. You could even he, read it. Right. They seem to be very, they're really towing that line of making this a family. Because MJ is going to get, MJ is going to get raped in that, yeah. in that rain scene. I mean, right. clearly. So right. that's right. Yeah. So, but they, they do tow, you're right. They do tow that line. And there are people in Hollywood that are very clever about that. They seem to be to really, happen, you know? yeah, they seem to be. And, you know, of course, we know how this well, this how well this movie did in the box office. And they really seem to be tailoring the film that way. But it was still interesting how they seem to be saying, like, you know, MJ's, you know, she's kind of like, she's kind of that girl. She may be kind of that girl in school who everybody thinks is like, you know, the class slut type right, of thing. Right, right. And they're not saying it in so pointed of a way, but it seems to be in that direction. And, you know, Kirsten Dunst is really an interesting actress. She seems very specific to this period. Of course, we know her going all the way back to Interview with the Vampire. You know, I think she was 10 in that and showed those strong, strong acting chops, solid. And later on, you know, you think about Spider-Man, you think of Sofia Coppola's first outing with Virgin Suicides. Like she just, she has a real, she has a charm, Kirsten Dunst. She also has a real eccentricity to her performance. Besides being attractive, besides being cute, she also, I didn't realize she came from Jersey. She has a very Northeast quality. She has a real outsider quality to her, even though she's been in a lot of TV and film. She's been very successful. I know like that sort of outsider quality that she has, that sort of um, relationship, that kind of hot and cold relationship that she actually has with Hollywood kind of comes out in her performance. And I think it makes her interesting. I always like seeing her pop up in films because she's fresh, you know, she has a freshness to her. So I really liked her as MJ. And I know she's gone down in interviews saying like this Spider-Man trilogy is the best, like why even redo it type of thing. Right. And I like that, you know, I like, you know, her, her bravado with that. I think, I think she brings a lot to this performance. I think she's really interesting to watch. I think she's fun. You know? you know what I re- you know what I remember about this? I mean, this is awkward to say, but I remember people really criticizing her teeth. Do you remember that? Mm. And mm-hmm. like that she had like a little bit of a snaggle or whatever. I seen and her I talk like, about that. Yeah. And I'm like, I was watching it because, you know, as an adult, I got Invisalign, but I didn't have great teeth when I was a kid either. Right. And when I was I mean, I still don't consider myself like the most beautiful man in the world I'm up there now. But <laughs> but I remember thinking at the time, people saying that and me looking at it and being like, are you fucking kidding me? And almost beautiful. wanting to do the the Austin Powers like, you know, with your mouth. Because it's like I, I was watching it last night through that, that lens and I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with people? You know, We're like, so are you are you kidding? I mean, I never said that. But I mean, are you are you kidding me? So crazy. Yeah, she's like gorgeous, first of all. And second of all. It's not you. I was just I was thinking about that because I was like, I remember that like so well, like people being hung up on it. That's crazy and, that an actress, you don't have to endure that. People are so spoiled. I think mean, she doesn't have that Hollywood sort of countenance, but but she's beautiful. I mean, she does bring that definitely. girl next door quality. She has perfectly fine teeth. But I remember her talking about that. Like, I don't know if it was the Spider-Man franchise or a different thing that she was involved with, but they were really riding her to get her teeth done. And she said no. 
Like this is, you know, this has worked for me so far. She's been, she was doing commercials from like the age of three. Like she was involved in Hollywood and television very early on. So why would she, you know, why would she have to do that? And also I, one thing I didn't notice a, a lot of you guys, or I didn't know a lot of you guys will know this. I don't know if you know, Kyle, she's married to Jesse Plemons, Todd of Breaking Bad fame. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I had no idea. And in fact, they're doing something together that's coming out shortly. I don't know if it's a TV series or a film. But I didn't know that. that. I think that's a really interesting couple. They they both seem to have that sort of indie quality to them that I could see, you know, I could see that being a marriage made in heaven. I thought that was a really interesting, really interesting ma- Hollywood marriage. I like that. So, Dig, with the MJ character in mind, I, I mean, I want to get a little more. Do you feel, I mean, to the question we asked or was asked earlier, do you feel like their relationship is too convenient? Because I, I don't feel that way. What I'm more curious about is, yeah. What is their interaction with each other? There's a lot of interpersonal plot holes in this movie that I identified for the very first time, especially with Osborne, his son and Peter, which we'll get into in a little while, like massive plot holes, actually, with the way Osborne talks to Peter and and all that. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But I feel like there was something missing because I wish that they just played up more like maybe they were friends as kids or maybe they just they grew up together. They knew each other. She calls May Aunt May. I mean, it's but then so does Willem Dafoe. It doesn't even make so some of this shit doesn't even really make any sense. <laughs> Did you feel like that happened too quickly or do you feel like it's just it is just the girl next door kind of thing? I just I, I was OK with it. I'm a little more mystified. I think like a lot of people are about, um, you know, how she doesn't figure out that it's who who's who until the end. Yeah. Some suspension of disbelief involved there. I think this movie, first of all, I think this movie moves very fast in general. It's a very quick you know, some, some things in particular, some instances like really jump. You're like, Oh, that was quick. You know, type of thing. This movie moves. It's real quick. I don't, the, the relationship between Peter and MJ doesn't really bother me because you know, there's a history there. They, again, they say that they sort of make sure that's clear in the exposition. And also you have to remember like the girl next door, boy next door thing in real life, that's a relationship of convenience. You know, it's a situation of pure you know, coincidence. It's just it's just a situation of fortune. You happen to grow up next door to each other. It could have been anybody, but it's MJ. But I think what I like about the relationship, and maybe it's a distraction for me, and that's why it doesn't bother me. Again, is that you know MJ isn't like you know she's not the typical girl next door we see in fiction, where it's like this fantasy girl who's one hundred percent pure. And you you think about the bluebirds and the flowers and the squirrels on her shoulder, that snow white sort of quality. You know, she definitely has her problems just like Peter does. And maybe, you know, maybe that's sort of also what he's attracted to. He's also in a kind of in a household. This is interesting. He's also in kind of a household with his aunt and uncle. It seems to be very, I don't want to say whitewashed, but I don't know. And, you know, it seems to be very pure and very good and a very, you know, a very sort of um, your typical suburban situation. And maybe he sees a little bit and sort of, we know Peter to be that way too. He's sort of like, you know, he's sort of like a good dude. Maybe he sees sees a little bit of that bad, quote unquote, in MJ. And that's what he's attracted to. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's the way it is in the comic books too, which would be hmm. an interesting bit of writing. But I think, you know, again, I'm reading into it a little bit. But it you know it totally works for me, and I think the acting is a big part of that. I think they're really good together. I think they have a chemistry. There's also an awkwardness between them that they play off really well, and probably just the pure acting chops of the both of them. You know, they both have that 
Toby Maguire has a real aw shucks quality to him. You know, he just does. I mean, you could later see in that carried over into something he does like Gatsby, like the Gatsby remake. He has that sort of audience surrogate relatability. You know, you're going along for a ride with this everyday dude type of thing. And Kirsten Dunst has a little bit of that more exotic nature. So it just works. Yeah, I, I, I agree. All right. Let's see here. Dig, I want to talk about the star of the show or the movie, Willem Dafoe. Brucey Thomas wrote in and said, <laughs> Hey, brothers, Moriarty, show. I just watched this movie for the first time in well over 10 years. And I have to say, in a post MCU world, I find Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin to be very hokey. It especially feels hokey against the mostly serious tone about the, around the rest of the film. It's almost as if the writers and directors lifted the Goblin's mannerism straight from the comic while, cha- while changing the rest of the movie around it. What say you? Dude, I was enamored with Willem Dafoe's performance. And I don't remember being that way the first time. First of all, <laughs> Willem Dafoe is just fucking hysterical. Oh my God. And so no matter what, he's over the top. He's overacting in this role. It's awesome. I think it fits. It's when he's in his, his all like, ha, like his all laughing weird thing and his all like all three go thing is a little creepy and stuff. But I really liked his performance in this movie. And I feel like between him and one other character, which we'll talk about later, I'm, I feel like they, these two were the stars of the show, the other mystery person I'll wait to talk about. What did you think about Willem Dafoe's performance as Green Goblin? Chewing the scenery all over the place, dude, is exactly what you expect from Willem Dafoe. He reminded me, you know what's cool about this movie though with him? He gets to play, because he's sort of this bipolar dude, right? He gets to play the crazy person and he gets to play the more calm, everyday you know, normal businessman, you know, he gets to, so he gets to display those, you know, those crazy acting chops and those more staid traditional acting chops. I think about him in something like, I don't know, like boondock saints, right. Where he plays like a homosexual FBI agent and it's really over the top. And then I think about him being younger in a film like Mississippi burning, where he plays opposite to Gene Hackman. And he's really, again, interestingly enough, an FBI agent in that film, but how, you know, he really brings a very staid, emotional, calm, normal acting performance to a role like that and how he could do both. But I think, you know, I always think of the Green Goblin. And again, I don't know the comics that well, but I think of how the Green Goblin and the Hobgoblin both looked in the comics and how different that was. And I remember being very surprised by the cyber tech armor robot mask approach to the Green Goblin in the film. And of course, then also you think of Defoe's sort of over the top performance where he's just really hamming it up, you know, smashing. He's always smashing bottles and throwing shit and, you know, talking to himself. But it's pure. I mean, it's why you hire Willem Defoe. And you know what? Willem Defoe, let me tell you something about Willem Defoe from what I hear. And like I hear Sam Raimi talk about working with him and all the directors and all the different collaborators that he's worked with through the years is that Willem Dafoe is going to do what he's going to do. I, you're only going to tell him so much. You know, I think he has a lot of that green goblin sort of personality to his real life thing. It's like, he's, he's going to come in, you're going to tell him what to do. Then he's going to tell you what he's going to do. And then he's going to do what he just said he's going to do. You know what I mean? Like that's going to be it with him. Like, and it's all over his roles. And I think that's probably, I mean, if you're too much of a control freak as a director, I'm sure it's not going to work out too well. But I think 90% of filmmakers, they know going in, that's why you hire this guy, is he's going to give you 100%. He's going to give you 100% of what he wants to do. But, you know, I think, I think it's hilarious. I think that, again, if you're, de- if you're dealing with camp, if you're dealing with a Sam Raimi, if you're dealing with a Tim Burton, just works. 
You know, it just totally, it's just, it's just super, super fun. Sometimes you wish he would hold back a little bit and just handle it a different way. But I think that's for a different actor. Yeah. I feel like they did a wonderful job with this casting. He steals the show to me. I, I just think the over the top nature of the performance is, is funny. Actually, I have to give Micah credit for this because she said, why is he so metal when <laughs> like when we're watching it? Because he is. He's just super metal, like body armor. Yeah. And he like, blow, like when he like, he just blows shit up, like when he comes and sees Aunt May, he just blows up the side of the. the. And I was wondering, I'm like, how does he know he's not going to kill Aunt May in the explosion? Right. And also it had I had one of those frustrating moments where he could have killed Spider-Man and he didn't. And it reminded me of it. I had to watch the original scene from Austin Powers where Scott is telling Dr. Oh Bill that he'll God, go get his so gun good. to kill. It's so good, dude. You know, you know, what, the Kyle, I should say moving device or whatever he said. <laughs> God, shout out to Austin Powers. Why was that the first film to make fun of all that? I don't you know, know. As far as I it's, know, it really was. Again, in the same time period, too, maybe a little, a little earlier. but. You know what, too, there, maybe there was some sort of teched out body armor, Green Goblin iteration in the comic books. I don't know. But for me, as a traditional Spider-Man guy, let's stop paying it. I mean, Spider-Man probably, I think, a 70s and 80s under ruse, super friends type. Not that he was in super friends, but that era, early Ralph Bakshi, 60s animated series Spider-Man, all the way up and through, through probably Todd McFarlane, pre-image comics you know, handling Spider-Man. And then I sort of tuned out. So who knows what happened, what transpired in that dozen years in between, you know, McFarlane leaving Marvel for image to when this movie came out, there could have been all types of green goblins. But for me, I always think back to the iconic pumpkin throwing elf green goblin type dude, you know? So this was, this was a surprise for me too. It's not just Micah. Who's a lot younger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I just, it is, it is funny just watching him and, and really bringing the camp to full flex and, and all of this, which is, you know, I don't know, man, got to love Norman Osborn. So fun. So fun. So let's talk about two other characters. Paul McFerrin wrote in and said, howdy men, Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris, absolute mm. perfection, warmth, levity, wisdom. If one knows Spider-Man, then they know just how important these two are. Uncle Ben literally comes to define who Peter is as a man. And Aunt May carries that legacy, a true encapsulation of characters in directing and acting. What do you boys share the same thoughts? So for me, I really am taken by these performances as well. I'm really fascinated by the, the characters of Uncle Ben and Aunt May. It is a very warm situation with the, how much they love Peter and presumably helping Peter when he needed it as a child and it's kind of fleshed out in my own experience. I'm not a comic reader, but just in even in the Insomniac Spider-Man game and other things. And um, I really this goes back to what I was saying earlier. I really struggle with the sadness inherent in his relationship specifically with uncle ben it's kind of fucked up because by from the time he gets bit until uncle ben dies he really doesn't get to speak with him and is actually avoiding and dodging them and can't and obviously he says that really harsh thing to uncle ben at the end and then uncle ben dies i mean to me it's just it's so sad because i'm like why does peter have to deal with so much trauma that awakens something in him and and not only that it it awakens this something in him but that he realizes that the choice he the one choice he makes not to do the right thing ends up blowing up in his face. And I'm like, that's kind of man, that's harsh. You know, it and, is. And it's also not realistic. The guy has a gun and he's got the money. Like, what are the, and the cops like, you, you let him go. Like, what the hell did you want? That whole scene bothered me because I'm like, what do you want Peter Parker to or what do you want this boy to do? This guy's running, b- booking it down a hallway with a bag full of cash. He stole on a gun. 
and he's not trying to stop him. What is he going to do? I mean, what is he going to do? So even though he gets the what he thinks is the last laugh at the guy, like that the promoter and stuff post wrestling match, I I still feel like it's hard for me to watch all of that. And I but I do like their characters, and maybe that's why it, it is so hard to watch. So what do you think about their performances from uh, Rosemary Harris and Cliff Robertson? They're both so good. I love what you just said though about that tragic event where Uncle Ben dies, and you know it is there's such a reality to that, right, dude? For me, like a character like Peter who really knows better, who's really deep down a good guy, acts out and does one thing wrong and pays dearly for it. Where if it was like a person of a complete different nature, let's say a proper villain, right? Did something wrong, that wouldn't have happened to them. You know, it's almost like, it's almost like, right? Like only the good die young type of thing where it's like the people that know better that sort of fly in the face of their true nature, that's when tragedy hits. There's such a a harsh reality to that. And it is, such a bitter, sweet moment in the film. And again, a reminder for this film, you think about the camp, you think about the fun, you think about the silliness, you think about maybe some of the misfires, but there is a lot of emotion, a lot of really great emotion and sentimentality in this film too, which I really enjoy. And that's one of the big moments. But you know, for me, for Cliff Robertson and uh, Rosemary Harris, I mean, they're really the grounding agents in this film. Both amazing performances by veteran actors. Um, I was surprised to see Rosemary Harris, according to Wikipedia, is still alive. Not to, you know, not to defy or be uh, ageist, but, you know, I was really, I was pleasantly surprised to see if she's still with us. I think Cliff Robertson died in 2011, if I'm not mistaken. But both amazing performances. You know, they both Definitely. bring so much to the story. You know, again, like what you said, they bring a warmth and a support instilling values they give peter that family life that sort of foundation of you know be home for dinner help around the house sort of that you know they you know they give him uh you know you you get to see peter's home life and and who he's dealing with and what he's getting and why he's good you know you get to see the good being handed down from you know ben and may's hands down to down to there down to Peter. And also just knowing that I think the story is that, and I was, you know, I was surprised that they didn't put this into the film, but I guess you don't want to overcomplicate it. I think Ben's younger brother is Peter's father. And I think the story in Spider-Man was that the Parkers were shield agents. Like they were agents of shield. I think they were recruited originally by Nick Fury and they were sort of on a mission and were killed by, one of the iconic villains, Red Skull or something. And that's how Peter ended up with his aunt and uncle. But apparently, I read back, Hmm. apparently he's raised really even even prior to his parents passing away. I think he's often raised by Ben and May because his parents are away on mission so much. And he doesn't really remember. Peter doesn't necessarily necessarily remember like the, the military slash shield side of his parents. He remembers them more maternal and paternal fashion, but that Ben and May were largely responsible for raising him even when his parents were alive. So I thought that was really interesting. I didn't realize that in going back. I just needed a little texture in there to remember. Sure. Again, not being a big comic book guy, but I love what these two bring to the film. You know, they bring that veteran acting presence without chewing the scenery. And, uh, you know, I know who who's May in the new in the MCU. It's uh, Marissa Tomei, right? Who's oh, you could also see as a proper handling of 
you know, the Aunt May character, but I, sure. lo- you know, I love. That's I crazy that, that, that she's like old enough now to. I know. And they make her a little younger and a little hipper and a little less old lady queens, you know, walking down the thing with her chopping basket. But, you know, it's another another way of handling it. But yeah, shout out to Rosemary Harris. She's awesome. She's so good. Let me ask you about this one issue I did have. Eric Myers writes in about this and says, what's up, guys? Yo, how do you feel about Peter doing 50 backflips, punching Flash halfway across the school, clearly dragging a lunch tray with a spider web and not even a soul remotely guessing that he's Spider-Man? <laughs> I recently rewatched this movie and while it's not very good, weirdly campy and kind of bizarre, damn it is not if it is not incredibly nostalgic for me. Willem Dafoe is absolutely out of his mind and I adore every single second of his performance. So what that plot hole, the whole who Spider-Man thing is, is yeah. one hole. But actually, the thing that stood out to me even more, Dig, was... <laughs> I, I suppose like why doesn't why does it seem that Norman knows Peter even though he says that he doesn't and they meet each other for the first time and shake their hands but then he's coming over for Thanksgiving weeks months later I don't know kissing Aunt May on the cheek giving her fruit cake or whatever calling her Aunt May like he seems familiar with everyone as yes. almost like he's old friends I don't understand why they even did that it would have actually been more believable if these two were just friends and he knew them it didn't add anything it actually just created this this weird oddity for me when uh, i i couldn't quite figure out how to to wrap that up i was like why does why why is he suddenly so familiar with everyone when he didn't know anyone at all he's and then he's comfortable and well obviously he's like take, he took the medicine or whatever but he's like and then he just leaves in a rage or whatever it's just very strange like something it you would is. do when you're very comfortable around people absolutely yeah, that Thanksgiving scene is weird. And that's where it seems like the pace starts picking up. It would have been interesting to have Mr. Osborne come into that Thanksgiving meal as a stranger. You know, you have a little bit of that awkwardness, meeting everybody for the first time and not really knowing anybody yet. Yeah, like why have all that? It's really, it's really kind of, it is really kind of odd. You know, I could see the, you know, the Osborne senior taking, you know, seeing that his son's a little bit of a slacker, knowing his son's best friend is the science whiz and sort of like-minded taking him under his wing a little bit and Peter not having a dad. So I could see all that, but, and they established a little that in the beginning when Mr. Osborne drops Harry off at the, at the science museum because they're going on that field trip or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's very, the pace is very rushed. A lot of suspension and disbelief and the school thing. I think the school thing only works because we never really go back there in the film. It kind of sets it off. Now here's another weird bit. Flash gets beat up by Spider-Man slash Peter, right? That night comes over, Peter's standing in the backyard with MJ, mm-hmm. comes over to his new car, sees him in the backyard, but just picks up MJ and just ignores the whole thing about getting the crap kicked out of him. I think MJ even says like, oh, he's just happy you didn't give him a black eye for yearbook pictures or whatever. Like, what? Like, there's going to be no fear, no retribution, no nothing. Like, there's just going to be like, Flash is just going to stand down. He's not going to, He's not going to try to make amends or try to get revenge or something like it's just going to be left alone. It's kind of, again, you, you got to kind of just ignore those those type of plot conveniences. But what can yeah. you do? Yeah, it's it's not a huge deal. It just stood out to me because I was like, it would have been. There's something even more sinister about the film if Norman Osborn was a real friend of the family who knew them forever and still went after Aunt May and still went still went after Peter when he knew who he was and all of the rest. It just, that just didn't make any sense. Like, why did they have to meet like that? And so on the stairs, you know, with when James Franco's there or whatever, they could have just been like, oh, hey, Peter, you know, how you doing? Like, it would have literally been the whole, that would have been the only difference in the right. entire dialogue. But instead Absolutely. they created this, 
this hole. I'm sweating through my shirt. Sorry, it's gross. Yeah, that's odd. That's really odd. The only thing I could think of is like when he storms out, when Norman storms out of Thanksgiving, it makes it no. See, it would even be more awkward if they didn't know him. You know, then it would be really weird. Yeah, you know? that, exactly. Yeah. That's why I just feel like you're absolutely him right. going after Aunt May would have been ten times more haunting if he was like a friend of Aunt May's, right? Yeah, and that's a friend of the so family anyway. and all that. Strange scene. I don't know, but I guess part of it is that Osborne, like Franco's character, is new too. I guess presumably to this whole thing but they know each other pretty well and yeah and he says yeah, at some yeah, point yeah. peter's like oh he looks at you like a brother so you're a son to me or something but i'm like you just met him why did why can't you just <laughs> anyway i have this other thing i wrote in my notes here just i guess because we're talking about all these people why can't teenagers play teenagers yeah it's weird i don't re- I, I was looking at pictures of fonzie as i sometimes do oh from happy days and i was winkler. like what was going on in this show <laughs> Henry Winkler, especially in the later seasons when he's like yeah. super cool with the Cunninghams and he's like always at the house and shit like that. Yeah. I'm like, this man is 40 years old. This Wait man a is second, 35. Though. How old was he supposed to be? In but the I show? thought he was he was supposed to be like a kid that was just a few years older than them. He was like right. the cool guy. I think he was supposed to be like maybe 20, 19. Yeah, like right, that. right, right, right. Because he's but working in the Henry garage. Winkler is not 19 or 20 years old in Happy Days. How old and was so, he then? I don't know. I don't even He's awesome, know. by the way. It'll ruin it for me if I look. But yeah, he's great. But He's awesome in that. What the fuck is that HBO show? Barry. Barry. Yeah, he's awesome in that show. He's great in that. But. I just don't understand what stuff, especially in films, I understand this more. We make fun of 90210 and others where you feel like this is going to go on forever. So eventually you kind of have to get them post puberty. And that makes sense. But when you're doing a 90 or 120 minute film, it's like, why not get 15 and 16 year olds? Yeah, uh, this is this. This bothers me a little bit. Does it bother you? Does it stand out yes. to you? I'm like, because when I see the fight scene or whatever, I was in high school when this came out. I was in 12th grade. So the styles are right. The sunglasses, the button downs, the baggy pants, it's all right. But when you look around, I'm like, these are all 20 something year old people. This is not really the way high school looks. And I don't understand what's stopping people from making high school look right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's a Hollywood type treatment that they do that seems to endure to this day to some degree. You know, sometimes you'll see the odd indie film and stuff, get it right. That feels legit. That's what I love about Into the Spider-Verse so much because it feels so authentic. You could do that in animation. It's easy. But you could also do, I would argue you could do that in live action. There's some really talented teenage actors and actresses out there. But it does bother me. I think we get so spoiled by the faces, by the James Francos and the Seth Rogans and the usual suspects, the people that we see, Jonah Hill, like the people that we see, not just in that camp, but the people we tend to see in parts, we sort of get placated by just it being those people, those faces, rather than reminding ourselves like, no, like you said, these are 15 and 16 year olds. These should be, these should be visibly younger people in these parts to make it really a genuine, you know, to really make it feel genuine. It's like that teacher, right? Let's talk about that teacher for a minute, that really odd choice of a teacher in the science museum field trip, right? I like it in the fact of like, it's not like this old traditional, like school marm type teacher or this professor with a pipe. Like it feels like a teacher that might be eight to 10 years older than the students. It feels like a very contemporary treatment, not just for like a teacher or an inner city teacher, but even in the suburbs, like a younger teacher. It's just that that guy's performance was weird. That guy's performance was really, really odd. I don't know if you can remember to think back to that bespectacled teacher who's like getting mad but he's like talking under his breath he's like yeah. got him biting his lip it's just a strange I, again like 
chalk it up in the win column for casting. It feels it feels right. It feels contemporary, but just an odd performance. But again, that just kind of for me like it just doubles down on the camp. Like I, I wouldn't have it any other way for this movie. I like going back and seeing that odd, those odd choices. So I feel like uh, we have to talk about the campiest part of the, the movie, which is the wrestling scene. Bonesaw, oh. Macho Man, Randy Savage. Now, this is another one of those things that I remember seeing. You were with me the first time. It's similar to my ox in fellow of the fellowship of the ring where mm-hmm. I'm like, this is fucking funny. And it became a meme where we were like hysterical <laughs> bone saw is ra- and he i noticed because mike and i've been talking a lot about macho, macho man randy savage lately and she's like a huge fan of his and we've been watching some of the videos that he does with like mean gene and shit which is like so, and he's like mean gene and he puts like the cream in, in his pocket like, cream rises to the top but i noticed that he like he takes the microphone from him like this so like holds it like like macho man and it's just he's playing macho man and it is so great so what did you think about that whole side? I mean, that is like maybe the f- most famous part of the movie in a lot of ways. Oh my God. I love that part of the movie. I just love like newborn PJ, like makeshift costume Spider-Man, red Nikes. I love the way like all the poses, sort of testing his powers on somebody for the first time. I love the wrestling scene so much. Bruce Campbell as the MC, you know, slash ring announcer. Like it's just, I mean, it's just like, it's just perfect. But I loved we we loved it. We you and I like were so into this as kids, and I wasn't even the biggest wrestling fan. Of course, Randy Savage transcends that. Like it doesn't matter if you're a wrestling fan. You know, look at the Slim Jim commercials. He was just a, he's just a household name. But I loved that it was Macho Man Savage playing a different character as Macho Man Savage. I mean, just like a different hair color and, and costume. I mean, it reminds you. First of all, I didn't realize Randy Savage was dead. I was really sad. Yeah, to he died yeah, a while ago. Long yeah. dead. Yeah, yeah, he's like for the past decade or something. Yeah, I would say so. I'll look it up real quick. But yeah, he's right? been dead a while. Yeah. But I mean, the other, I mean, a, besides being a brilliant wrestler and sought after, like the ultimate showman, I mean, he is hilarious. And there are people that do impressions, obviously, but you could never do a perfect impression of this man. His genius was beholden only to himself. And like every iteration, every nuance to his movement, the intensity, like the, I'm going to explode any second intensity, the veins in his head, like everything about it is hilarious. You know, like you're, you're going nowhere. <laughs> you're mine for the next three minutes. Like <laughs> The way he shakes and the way he turns his head, like everything is extra theatrical. And I think that's what makes wrestling I, again. Like I know wrestling goes hand in hand with nerdom in general. I was never a big wrestling dude. I enjoyed it. The WWF in the original, like when it was very popular and they had the animated series and we had all the clothes at home because somebody in our family handled the merchandise for that and everything. Do you remember that? Yeah, totally. Getting all the, like we would get boxes full of WWF merchandise. Totally. I do. Yep. Our mom's cousin handled that. His apparel company handled the license. And um, I don't know if we've ever talked about that before, but I was never a huge fan beyond that Saturday morning type thing. Sure. Although I know like it goes hand in hand with video games and superheroes and Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, dude. And so those, thing. well, I mean, it's just even the games themselves of the wrestling games, especially oh, SNES and N- the N64 PS1 era, like people love, love those them. games. And I was into wrestling probably from, I mean, not into it, into it, but I liked wrestling during its high camp era. So like mid to late eighties through the early nineties, yeah. I was That's into right. it. Like I 
because it was fun. It was like Million Dollar Man versus Jake the Snake so or good. Rick, Rick Rude versus, you know, Boink the Clown <laughs> or whatever. Whatever the hell was going on out there, it was just, it was ridiculous. It was like watching G.I. Joe bad guys fighting each other. I mean, you could That's see where it. guys like, you could see where Road Pig and Big Boa and some of these villains come from. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's funny how they kind of go in between each other. Or Serpentor, I mean, looks like a fucking wrestler. All so that stuff. It's awesome. And I, I felt like it all was part of that. Yes. And when it got away from that with wrestling for me, when it started to become a lot of dudes without their shirts on, just all the same, they didn't wear masks. And, and I mean, some of them do, but. It wasn't about the characters anymore. Now it's just like, you know, Cole, Stone Cold Steve Austin and yeah, you know, John Cena and whatever. I'm like, who gives a shit about any of this? This isn't fun. I want like the I want like the midget clown fighting, you know, coming out little from person. underneath the little no, person. I'm God, please. Little, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it as a slur. <laughs> little person, dwarf, <laughs> dwarf wrestler coming out from underneath, the you know, and, and and coming out and like grabbing someone's legs and the guy's getting beat up. And like, that's the good shit. Absolutely. You know, I, and I don't, Why and did I don't want it happen. I don't know. Why did I, it I, cross over from the superheroes to the less? The 90s ruined a lot of interesting. stuff. Interesting. You so have to understand weird. the 90s ruined a lot of stuff. That's the what 90s, it was. The 90s ruined Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The yes. 90s ruined G.I. Joe. The yep. 90s ruined Transformers. The 90s ruined almost everything. And it ruined wrestling. Because, and why? It's the very thing you say about, about grunge, right? Yeah. It's everyone's like, oh, we don't want any of this fucking hair metal anymore. And, and wrestling was hair metal. And now Dude, grunge, that's such a great point. And now grunge is like say by the bell or something. I mean, you know, or whatever the case might be. I, I don't it, it's different. It, no, it, you're it, absolutely right. You don't want anything garish. You want the earth colors now. You right. don't want it. You want to fly in the face of like that's 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 campy. We don't want campy. We want realism. You know, that's that's exactly what it was. You're absolutely right about that. That's so, I think that's so. why I mean, John I think, Cena I think replaced so. Roddy Piper, you know. Oh, man. And Hulk Hogan, you know. Oh, wow. Hollywood Hulk. Hollywood Hulk. And he's still banging around. <laughs> Pardon yeah, the pun because he's definitely banging around too. All right. Oh, no. Let's see here. What else is here that I want to discuss? There's quite a bit, actually. Let's talk about the visual effects. Brendan King wrote in and said, hello, fellas. As someone who loves this movie, I must say that some of the visual effects and fight scenes don't hold up too well. This does not affect my enjoyment at all. It's just something that I noticed as I rewatched. How do you guys feel about this? Keep, keep up the great work. I don't think I have an eye for this shit anymore. Because when I was criticizing Two Towers, everyone was like, that movie looks great. And then, I, and then I said something like, something looked good. And everyone's like, that movie looks horrible. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's another situation with this where I'm like, this looked great. I think part of the reason why it generally looks good is because the movie does not rely on special effects very much. And I, it, when you really strip it down, there's the web, some of the web slinging stuff and the overhead yeah. shots of him running between the buildings. But it's like not much. No. And and the fight scenes, obviously, I bet you can pare down true special effects shot to a few minutes most in the entire movie. And even when they're fighting, they're in it's practical. A lot of the fights, like when they're fist fighting and stuff like sure, that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings out the camp even more because you see, you know, Green Goblin, like you said, in his fucking metallic helmet. And we're used to seeing him with his like almost like sleeping cap on or whatever the fuck it is he was wearing in the comics. So I think a hobgoblin, I always think of him wearing like one of those <laughs> Santa looking hats. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I was telling Micah, I was like, you know, there was a villain called Hobgoblin, which I really liked. I, I knew about him in the comics. I had the toy because it threw the pumpkins. Yeah. But yeah. I was like, I don't know how they all interact. I don't understand what the, what the whole goblin lineage is. But what did you think of the special effects? Because I don't know that I agree with this assessment. I think because it didn't rely so much, it wasn't special effects porn. It's not Transformers or something where I'm like, oh, God, like it's it's so much. Where I, I don't mean to insult it because, again, my, that's like one of Micah's favorite movies. We don't, we don't talk about Transformers. <laughs> But it's just it's just tech porn. It, it, it moves so fast. You can't even see what's going on. It's nonsense. And I don't feel like this movie. I feel like this movie actually lets you look at it. And maybe that's part of what 
lets some of that stuff shine through. The shadows are a little wrong. The depth of field's a little weird, whatever. But I don't know that it doesn't hold up very well. In fact, that intro, that animated intro with that Danny Elfman music and that score playing. Oh, I love that. I was like, this actually looks awesome because some of that, even some of that stuff doesn't look very good. But you can tell they put a lot of time and effort in. And this is kind of, not quite yet, but we're kind of getting to the period in this in the early aughts where things are starting to hold up. Yes. A lot more. No, so you're what did absolutely you think, right, man. What do you think about the visuals? I think the visual, you know, there's a lot to say here. I think you're right about the web slinging and the fight scenes. You know, you have the set piece battle during the parade and a couple other fights. They tend to be my least favorite parts of the film. And there was some sort of commitment. I know I, hear, I heard Sam Raimi talking about this in one interview specifically, where there was some sort of commitment from either him or Sony or whatever. Maybe it was even Marvel, Marvel was involved in this, where they decided to go for a CG spider-man and a lot of those more dynamic scenes rather than do some sort of stunt commitment just because they wanted to you know they didn't want to rely on compositing and they wanted to make everything as dynamic and comic booky as possible but here's the problem with now 20 year old animation and vfx tech is that and we talk about this on the show from time to time treating the human body and cgi is just inherently problematic because we all know mm. what that really looks like. So when you have a Spider-Man or a Peter Parker that's too rubbery, our eye discerns that. Even, you know, even the the quote unquote layman, you don't have to be an animator or be like an ultra nerd to understand like when things look wrong. We talk about it on the show a lot, actually. And I think this movie has that for those set piece battle parts. They have that CG Spider-Man swinging through the sit down the city street, or battling the you know battling the various villains or cops or whatever. Also, Kyle, I have to say the hob. You haven't seen Spider-Man two yet. No, the Hobgoblin thing will make more sense to you. Okay, in versus Green Goblin, I think. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, I might have seen it, but I don't really remember. I've definitely not seen the third one. I don't remember the second one. So if I did see it, oops, yeah, the second was- one's Doc Ock, I think. The third one is Venom. Oh, maybe I did see that then. Venom I, Sandman, I, I vaguely I remember that as well. If I'm remembering that. But you know what? I might be confusing that with the video game because I think he's the bad guy in the game too. I yeah, don't, that's true. I don't, you, that's, yeah, I don't I, that's one thing I haven't experienced yet. That's oh, that game is so overdue. Dude, Spider-Man and, oh. and Miles Morales, they're both great, great games. Oh, I got to play. I got to play those. Okay. But, you know, oh, I'm sorry. For, Go ahead. But yeah, for the VFX, I think that's the thing. I think one thing that lets this movie off the hook for me a little bit, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, is that the degree of camp and fun and just kind of dismissing, you know, your, any kind of concern about continuity or even, even in, you know, for me, a comic book layman and tying things back to the comic book, like I could just dismiss a lot of that and just have fun. And I think the sort of goofy looking 20 year old VFX in the movie sort of lends into that now, like it sort of goes along with the campiness and the goofiness a little bit. So you kind of can let it off the hook just a bit as long as it's it kind of smacks that way for me anyway and the other thing is they do do a good job in certain sequences like i think the wrestling match is really is really cool i think they do a really good job in that and it's not just the stunt work and it's not just the acting it's also the intercutting making everything feel like a comic book i mean i could even think my favorite web slinging scene is the scene where he's trying to do it for the first time and they're cutting away to just his fist doing different poses it feels like it's cut like a comic book. It feels like a comic book movie should feel. And I think even with some of the better films of the MCU, you think of Civil War and Infinity War and Endgame, which I finally saw, great movies. 
Awesome movies. Very emotional. Again, Disney handling the MCU really correctly. But I think those films get so serious and they get so bogged down in being dark and feeling grounded and all that kind of stuff that they lose that comic booky feel. You know, they lose the fun sometimes. And that's what that's what this movie has. So and I think that's what holds this movie dear to me still is that it has all of that. And they still go in for the set piece battles and they did the best they could with the tech they had at the time. Again, like you know, things evolve fast. By 2005, you could have made fun of this movie. But I think it always looked the same. I think it looked goofy to me when it came out. You know what I mean? It was like, all right, like couldn't they just do like real stunt work or maybe they were concerned about green screen or compositing and they wanted to sort of double down on the tech that they had and animate the stuff. But I don't think it feels that much different to me than it did in 2002, 2003. I still think back then I was like, eh, you know, I think it just feels like almost like maybe the movie lucks out in this regard, but it feels like the movie is supposed to look like that to me, you know, so I could kind of let it go. What about, and I, I did want to bring this character up because I promised I'd bring one other character to bear and I, I would like to do that. J.K. Simmons portrayal oh. as J. Jonah Jameson is amazing. And so good. When I was watching it last night, I was like, holy shit, is that J.K. Simmons? Because I said something like, you know, we've seen a thing or two or whatever, you know, whatever his insurance line is, because he's like a famous oh, farmer. Yeah. Right. But again, I always see him on Oz and it's disturbing in my oh, mind. That's but, right. But I loved this performance. I thought this, I thought he just leaned into this performance, stole the show when he was in the scenes. This is exactly the way I see J. Jonah Jameson. And in fact, even in the Spider-Man movies, and I, I don't know exactly how accurate it is to form to the comics. I just feel like this seems to have transcended this film and now is kind of the way people see this character. I don't know if through J.K. Simmons portrayal. So what did you think about his character? We don't really see him until the second half of the film. Jonah Jameson has such an iconic look in the comics. And I think for some reason, even though it's watered down, the J.K. Simmons performance or, or look or aesthetic is kind of watered down for the film. It still feels like that character so much. I think I think J.K. Simmons is one of our great actors. I really do. I think he's one of the greatest actors we have. I think of him, of course, in, in films like Whiplash. You think of him in, I, th- I think of him in Juno. This is probably the first, this film is probably the first time I've ever seen him. And he's just brilliant. He's just a brilliant performer. You know, he just seems like he could, one of those guys that could do anything. He could do a comedic turn. He could do a dramatic turn. Mm-hmm. He could do action. Definitely. He's kind of down for whatever. I know he does, as far as I know, he does stage as well. Just so strong. And yeah, think about like the J. Jonah Jameson character is like a secondary character in the Spider-Man world. Important, but you know, not an Aunt May, not a Spidey, certainly not an MJ, not a Gwen Stacy, not one of the iconic villains. But think about an actor of J.K. Simmons stature that just goes in so far, goes all in for a role like this and just brings something that maybe even more so than what the role deserved. It's such a treat, dude. It's like, it's so... It's so great. It, it makes me, I think about him a lot because of the commercials. It's so smart. You know what I mean? That he does the farmer's bit, that he's the farmer's insurance guy, because that gives him the leverage and the independence to choose the projects that he wants. He probably makes a fortune off those commercials, right? Being the poster child for this insurance company. You know, and now he could go out and he could do, you look at his filmography, it's all, one, it's all amazing, like the way he picks his, his, uh, his roles. And his calls, like it's so, it's so smart. Like every actor should be, should be that talented and should have those instincts. You know, he's just so, he's so much fun in this. So good. And you know, you'll go on to see him in the later films too. 
we talked a little bit about New York City. We should get back to that. Joseph LaRusso wrote in and said, hello, my fellow Long Islanders. What do you think of that famous or infamous you mess with us, you mess with all of us scene at the end of the film. <laughs> Over the years, it has been mocked as cheesy and is definitely something written in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but I still get a warm feeling because I do take pride in my home. Uh, my parents are still, are, I'm sorry, my parents are parents are both retired NYPD officers, so there's something about that scene that while it is a bit cheesy, I still enjoy it. I still enjoy it. It makes me smile. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Joseph. I like this too. I, again, I think this is an interesting cultural relic of a period after 9-11 with a movie. I mean, I would have to know much more about cinematic history, but was there a big blockbuster that came out after 9-11 that took place in New York City before Spider-Man? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't think so. You had about seven or eight months to get a movie out. Sure. And so they were at least one of the very first and most prominent celebrators of the city. And I know we forget about Shanksville a lot and the Pentagon, but New York City really was the, the main target and took the brunt of those deaths. And, and I don't want to forget the other places where people died, too, but at that moment, it just seemed really appropriate to celebrate New York City. So, yeah, it is outrageously corny, but it makes sense if you were there. And it's funny to look back when I mean, I remember when everyone was just flying American flags out of their cars and like it was nuts. I mean, the patriotism on display from September of 2001 and for a few years was over the top. If you weren't around, you didn't know that. And so this movie is a relic of that time and maybe one of the most or one of the most vivid representations of what it kind of felt like. So what did you think about the New York City celebration in the film? Yeah, man, I'll always remember that period of time for that. You know, sort of that everybody's sort of banding together in their patriotism, seemingly everybody, you know. And, you know, I think we knew it was heavy handed and cheesy even at the time, but we were just so happy to see it in there. I mean, just Spider-Man in general, not even the film franchise, but just Spider-Man in general, there's such a New York pride associated with that. Even being from Long Island and knowing that Peter's from Queens is like Queens is right next door to Long Island. It's even that sort of, there's even that sort of pride and that sort of touchstone and maybe an appeal for us too, besides just being into Peter and being into Spidey as like our fa- one of our favorite superheroes. I think that New York aspect is important to note too. And, you know, it again, like the end of the film with the American flag, and I'm not sure if I heard that that was something that they added later or they extended later, or maybe it was initially thought of as a little different. I like what you said in the beginning of the show, in, in the beginning of the podcast earlier, Kyle, where it was like, you think in terms of like, you know, a patriotic thing in general, a patriotic not in general, like a like a song at a at a sporting event or something, isn't necessary or is it too is it too much? Is it going too far? I always think like in the ending of this film, I was watching it and I automatic I saw the Spidey on the top of the skyscraper with the American flag, giant American flag blowing in the back, and I automatically think of our international friends. You know, you know what I mean? Like our friends in Australia or in Europe or in China or in Japan or wherever. Right. And I always think about like, would I now you think about a property like James Bond, right? Synonymous, for instance, with the British flag, right? With the Union Jack. And you kind of take that as part of this is it's Bond, of course, like that English pride, that whole thing. Right. But I wonder if it bothers people because it's not even a sporting event. It's like this worldwide, iconic pop culture not even nerd culture, but pop culture thing, the Spider-Man, one of the biggest, most well-known family name, comic books, comic characters in history. Does it bother people 
that it's tied to this sort of patriotic United States sentiment? Or do people take it as like, of course, the United States, because Spidey's from New York. It's part of America. It's part of the United States. It's part of the story. It's part of the fabric of that thing. So I, I often wonder about it from that from that perspective, because I think as Americans, we are a little spoiled with pop culture because not all, obviously, but much of the pop culture comes from where we live, right? But I, for me, I have to say, like, if I saw something inherently Japanese, let's say Godzilla, right? I expect to see that Japanese flag. I expect to see Tokyo. I I, I want to see all that kind of stuff. I don't want that's why like I think that's part of the why like Americanized remake things of things like Godzilla bother me so much because it's not inherently a westernized thing. This was a this was an eastern thing and you're kind of leveraging it and making it something else. So I often I try to really be introspective and sort of I don't know if empath, empathetic's the right word but try to examine it from a different perspective. Because we are American and we are kind of spoiled because so much of the stuff that we love does come from this place. Again, not all, but a lot of it, you know? All right, Dave. Well, let's get through a few of these other things here. We brought up Danny Elfman before. Mm. Ollie Reynolds wrote in, said, gentlemen, hope you're both well. I'd love to know your thoughts on the Danny Elfman score for Spider-Man. Personally, I get chills every time I watch the opening credits nearly 20 years later, and it's still my favorite superhero score. What say you? Keep up the fantastic work. So. Danny Elfman, of course, famous musician, Oingo Boingo, Dead Man's Party, one of the great <laughs> 80s songs. But I think I'm starting to watch enough film now with a more critical ear and eye that I kind of I didn't really know Danny Elfman did this score. And I was like, oh, this sounds like this kind of sounds like like a Tim Burton movie, you know, and then you realize, oh, it is a Tim Bur- it is a Tim Burton movie. So not literally, but Danny Elfman's involved. So it sounds like a Tim Burton movie. So it's start, I'm starting to kind of be able to be able to identify that stuff, which has not typically been very important to me in my cinematic voyages, but is becoming more. So what did you think about the score and also the soundtrack, which is very iconic for uh, fans of music in that time period? Oh, it sounds it sounds so Elfman, but it's so it does. You know, it, do, it does seem like that time period, but you could extend Elfman all the way back to the 80s. We think about Pee Wee. We think about everything in the 90s. Right. We think about his collaboration with Tim Burton. But again, you know, it's interesting for me, like Sam Raimi and Tim Burton feel so much the same to me as filmmakers, like what they're bringing to the the overall picture. And I think it's such a great tie in with the eccentricity and the oddness and the, the specific brand of melody that Danny Elfman brings. Like, it's just such a style. It's such a flavor. And that it, that opening is so Dan is so Danny Elfman and feels so interchangeable with like a Tim Burton film. It just it just reminds you how important he is. You know, it's he's like one of the most important composers in film history. He's just you got to put him up there with with all the biggies, with all the big names. He's just such an important part of of the overall package. And also, you know, Danny Elfman's also really good at that again, that specific flavor, that specific style, that like household name, like Telltale, all the all the tells in a, in a specific Danny Elfman piece of music. But he's also really good at just receding to the background. You know, he's also really good at having the music there, filling things in, but not necessarily paying attention to it, you know, just receding where he has to. And I think, you know, that's probably a really hard, I I have no musical inclination whatsoever, but I would imagine that's even harder than bringing it with like, 
you know, an anthemic score is like actually being able to recede to the background and just fill in music and fill in maybe the the slower bits or the less demonstrative bits of the film and stuff. And he's so good at that. You know, he could just, he could recede as fast as he could come to the forefront. And that's, mm. to me, that's like gotta be like one of the hardest things I would think as a musician, right? Sure. I, I always, I always fascinate. I'm fascinated by the process. Definitely. The, how, how do you know? You know I, I don't, it's, it's genius level work just in knowing, you know, John, we talk about John Williams and all the others. It's, it's, oh it's quite, God. it's quite amazing. So just, good. I would love to just sit with them and understand their process and see how they look at the film. And then, how, you know, are you working on it in pieces or do you have a, a theme before you even see it and, yeah. and all the rest? It's quite interesting. They don't have much time. Usually. Who would you put as, as the top? Danny Elfman, John Williams, Hans Zimmer. John right. Williams would be, I, I don't know enough to, I, I don't think even answer that question, but I would say John Williams would be for me personally. Oh, because all the iconic things he's done. Yeah. You know? Star Wars and indie, especially. I mean, these are, these are very important films. I, I want to give a, a passing shout out to the soundtrack. Like I said, th- this is a funny soundtrack because there's a lot of great music on it. And I don't know that all of it even appears in the film, but Hero by Chad Kroger from Nickelback and Josie Scott from Saliva is actually a really good song. It's What We're All About is a great rap rock song from Sum 41. The Fault is on here. Alien Ant Farm's on here. The Strokes and the Hives. Macy Gray God. sings that song in the movie, which is funny. She's come up a couple times now recently because she was in Training Day and we talked about her there. Right, that's Arrow right. Smith's in here, et cetera, et cetera. Jerry Cantrell, of course, from Alice in Chains. So yeah, a lot of good music here. I wanted to give that a shout out as well. Now, Dave, one of the great things about this movie are the memes that have come out of it. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of them, but Dexter Wallingsford says, hey, fellas, what's your favorite meme from this movie? Oh, Bone God. saw is ready. Has to be mine. My, my favorite one is I'm something of a scientist myself when Norman Osborn says that. So there's like a shot of that and then people <laughs> edit it. So it says like I'm something something of a whatever myself and they put that <laughs> meme. But my favorite one is when it says I'm something of a fucking idiot myself. And it's just him and that. <laughs> In that look, I don't but think I've seen that one. This movie is this movie is just so, it is so memeable. And I was on, it's not quite like Lord of the Rings, but as I've been watching it, I was like, wow, I'm so flabbergasted by how many of these th- memes have just come out of these random films, and I never even really thought about it. So I wanted to give a shout out to that. Is there any that come to mind for you? It'd have to be anything bone saw related yeah. for me. That those are probably the ones that have come up across my feed as well, like the most. So it had to be, yeah, it would have to be anything bone saw. I mean, how could you? How can you beat bone saw? I mean, it's just you can't. <laughs> No. All right. Let's get into some of the quotes Thomas Bruce wrote in and said, hey, fellas, it may be sincerely inspired by video game donkey, but me and my flatmate regularly scream, you and me could run this city Spider-Man and we could just fight to the death. So my question is, are there any quotes from this movie or indeed any other film that either of you quote regularly? Thanks for all that you do. I just wanted to bring that up to the point of Bonesaw. I mean, Bonesaw is ready. I must have said I've said it a thousand times in my life, at least. In that same, you know, in that same intonation, bone saw is ready. Kind of situation is that? <laughs> is there anything that you'd like to add? No, I mean probably anything Norman Osborn says, especially when he's in his sort of bipolar, arguing himself, Gollum esque type thing. But I always think of the boring. I mean, besides bone saw, which of course is iconic, I always think of like, with great power comes great responsibility. But I'm imagining that has to be derived from the comics now again not being a huge comic book guy not being a huge comic you know spider-man steve ditko classic spider-man stan lee you know 
aficionado, but I, I would imagine that has to be derived from the comics. If they did make that just for the films, it's pretty, that's a pretty iconic thing to come up with. But I, you know, the, the other thing is that's very mysterious about that is that I understand loving family members, right? A loving aunt and uncle raising a, a young boy. They believe in him. You always think your loved ones, your, your little uh, protégés are destined for great things, but what, like, did they know he was going to be, it's almost like they knew he was going to be that great. You yeah. know what I mean? They almost knew he was destined for really spectacular. Ooh, sorry for the pun. Amazing. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. But, you know, they always knew he was destined for this level of greatness that, you know, is not really realistic. So that is interesting that uh, Ben knew that. It was maybe a little more to Uncle Ben than met the eye. Again, his, his younger brother, some sort of super scientist, field agent for S.H.I.E.L.D. type thing. So who knows if he passed that on. Now, ironic that Spider-Man would be, have his powers derived from having nothing to do with that, but maybe he did. Maybe there was sort of tie into some sort of genetic thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing here. Yeah, who knows? I, who knows? When it comes to this film, I'm just much more interested, and we'll wrap it up with this, I think, in, in just how important it was to getting us to where we were and to think about, as we often do on the show, where things were in a certain pe- or where things were at a certain period of time and right. looking at it through that historically relevant lens, relative lens. Sure. And Jake James Lugo wrote into us on Patreon with this. He says, Yo. hey, there's C&D. Spider-Man is one of those films that was made at a time when the idea of a superhero film as we know it today was alien to most people. A lot of how things turned out to be or turned out were because Marvel had sold up their movie rights to various studios, such as Fox getting X-Men and Columbia getting Spider-Man. My question is, do you think we could have gotten something remotely close to what this film turned out to be if Marvel had never sold the Spider-Man movie rights off? And would you have wanted to keep or see the Marvel Cinematic Universe start off with a Spider-Man instead of an Iron Man years later? Keep mm. up the great work as always. Love listening to the conversations you guys have on the show. Thank you for writing Thank in. Thank you. So my opinion on this dig is, yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, you know what? This movie is not as far removed from the notorious mid 90s Batman movies as I thought. Now, they're they're not as crazy, but you can kind of see some of the genetics there. It's just a, these are just it's Spider-Man. It's just a much better film. But even like you were saying, with the outfits and some of the corny dialogue and all the rest and the disbelief, it draws a lot from those very controversial Batman films. And so you can kind of see the Spider-Man movie as just part of the evolution. But I think that it was the first time since 89 Bat, or let's say Batman Returns. Yeah. If you want to be fair, that, that okay. per, a person was like, this is a great superhero movie. And a lot of people were really skeptical about that. And a lot of you know, there were a lot of other attempts at this point or around this time from other smaller movies. Like I think Daredevil was not too long after this. And yes, good point. You know, they, uh, Ghost Rider. Remember that? And all a, a bunch of other stuff. So. Yeah, some sort of iteration. One of the iterations of Fantastic Four. Like, right, exactly. They were so trying other stuff. They were trying other things. And I, I I, think this movie is especially important because I think it was the proof that they needed to say, like, we can go ahead. And I also think it gave Christopher Nolan and the DC people a different way of doing things. I think that now that I've seen Spider-Man and you kind of enhanced to that point, you realize, well, there's this other way of doing things that could be even darker and actually grounded and more serious. So now we have the best of both. I'm curious what you think about the importance of this film and to the question, how you think it led us to the MCU? Because I wonder, I, I must believe that Marvel in some cir- circuitous and fucked up way is very grateful for the journey it went on, even though it was very tough because it brought them to Disney and it brought them to this meteoric success that 
they ended up having. And, and to get to that point, they almost died. And it reminds yeah. me a lot of Apple, where Apple was a quarter away from death in the mid 90s. Like it's, it's unbelievable to think about that. They almost they almost went away and they Is that crazy and they needed products and they found the products and the iMac and the iPod and the I, iPhone and all of that. So they, they, they turned it around. Kind of reminds me a little bit of that, just from a creative sense. So I'm curious what you think about that as we as we wrap up. Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting to go back and look at the history of superhero franchises outside of the initial, you know, media, which is the comic books, and you know, flying into TV and flying into film. It always seems to me, Kyle, like the successful things are the ones inherent to a really authentic vision. You know, think of a Tim a Tim Burton entry of Batman, Christopher Nolan. Think of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Think of Bruce Timm and Paul Dini with the Batman animated series. Like the successful things that work are just inherent to really ingenious visions and sticking to their guns as far as like an, of carrying through an authentic vision for something. And the other things are just, we think about the failed attempts, the Daredevils, whatever Fantastic Four movies. I would argue a lot of the X-Men films, they're just watered down, too many cooks in the kitchen not really beholden to one strong singular vision entries into, you know, even think of the TMNT movies, the Michael Bay stuff, Transformer films, like, you know, they just, and and maybe, maybe even those you could argue had a vision, even though a lot of them seem wrongheaded to traditional fans like myself, but you know, that's what it always seems like the, the formula for success is beholden to just a really strong, really genuine vision of one person that carries through, you know, you think about Steven Spielberg, you think about the original auteurs, Hitchcock, uh, George Lucas with the original Star Wars films, some of the earlier James Bond films, whatever, like those are all beholden to the vision of a single person in the, the Indiana Jones films that we grew up loving, all of that stuff. So that's what it always seemed, the things that missed the mark, that's what they were lacking, were that one sort of really strong vision and the trust of the the money, you know, the the money people and the film studios to let the creators carry through their vision from A to Z. That's what it always seemed like to me. You know, it doesn't seem like it's that hard. I know it's hard to do, but if you have that formula for success, you just got to kind of follow the the blueprint, I think. And um you know, I, I it's so nice to see a guy like Sam Raimi who I think is a visionary to, you know, see him enter the MCU. It doesn't surprise me that they're using him for something. It seems like a proper, you know, a proper payoff for the work he put into these films. And you could say, you know, we'll talk about the rest of the trilogy. And when you talk about the rest of the trilogy, as opposed to just the first film, I think it's a different conversation because I think there are a lot of failures in that, you know, over the course of those three films, but it is a vision. You know what I mean? It, right or wrong, whether you like it or not, whether traditional Spider-Man purists like it, or even the average film goer like it or not, I think they are beholden to a really straight line, like a, a certain vision, and they stick to that. And maybe they get a little goofy or fly off the handle here and there, but I think that's what makes it memorable. And I think, again, that litmus test after two decades, we're still talking about this movie in a positive light for as goofy as it kind of goes sometimes and you know, for, as, for as much as it misses the mark here and there. I think all in all, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it was fun to go back and re revisit because I hadn't seen it. I mean, it's probably been 15 years. Yeah, I would I say it was the same for me. I, I must, it must have been since college for me as well. Super, super cool. Super cool. But I think, that's, I think that's really the formula. I don't think it's that hard. I think 
I think where it's going now, and we talked about with Christopher Nolan, we talk about with the current MCU, with the Avengers, especially like it just gets to be a little bit too heavy. Like I know it went in a direction where it's like, this has to be gritty and dark. And we went in that direction. And then you learn, okay, it's too much. It's almost like the eighties rolling into the nineties, right? You're flying in the, it's like, that's, it was too neon. It was too wild. We have to make it really conservative and restrained. And then you go that direction and you're like, all right, this is too conservative and restrained. Then you fly back the other way. I think it's just kind of the nature of the beast with creativity, but I'm really interested to see where it goes now. You know, you have things like guardians of the galaxy, which are a lot more, you know, treated a little bit more lightly, a little more in a pop culture sense with, with music and fun. And you, you know, you have the Avengers movies, which are more grounded and serious. So I, I'm interested to see where the big franchises take it next. And, you know, seeing some of these things, seeing some of these traditional pop culture or superhero properties cross over into indie film too, with studios like A1. And, you know, we saw it with, you know, who knows, in the hands of a filmmaker who's a, a quote unquote indie filmmaker, why can't some of the things go in that direction too? We saw such a different direction with the Deadpool films, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point on the show, where it was like, that was a really different vision for you know, traditionally what was a Rob Liefeld comic and you take it in this direction with, you know, with the certain players and the people involved and handling it with humor and a a whole different feel. So I think there's a lot of different directions to go. And I think we're really just, we're just really broaching the surface right now. I think we're really just getting into it. I think we're going to see a lot of really cool things between the different nerd culture franchises. I think I think we're in for some treats. I think people are finally getting it. I think it had it had a chance to find its lane now. You know, it went too much in this direction, went too much in that direction. We had all the the people that set the tone, the Tim Burtons, everybody. Now I think we're going to be over the next decade, I think we're going to see some really cool stuff. Me too. And I'm excited yeah, to see sure. more of it. I'm, I'm glad that the audience voted for this. It was cool to go back and watch the film. Hope people enjoyed our conversation about it. Dave, let's wrap up this episode as we always do with a dad joke. All right, let's do it, my friend. You know what? And I don't know. Do, we didn't talk about James Franco earlier. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't. There's not so much to say about him. I thought he was quite charming. But it's interesting to see him here. But. Yeah, I don't I, I don't even think he enters into the conversation. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he, he's James Franco. He, he's acting. It's, you know, it's like whatever. He'll he, he'll be more a bigger part of the conversation, too. And when we finally talk about that movie. But it was interesting that he kind of gets over James Franco of all people gets overshadowed in this conversation, but he kind of does, you know what I mean? He just does in this, in this film, in this conversation for some reason. All right, Kyle. Okay. Now dad joke today. I'd like to enter this into maybe the worst dad joke we've done on the show. I'm confident. Okay. This might be the worst one. It's exciting. Let's hear it. Over almost 200 dad jokes. This is, this, this must be special. So you guys will let me know what you think. It's pretty bad. Never heard this one before. Kyle, what kind of car does an egg drive? I don't know. A Yolks wagon. Oh, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's a kind I of a kid I joke. Thought, I should have thought about that a little more. I feel I like it's it. one that you could get. I yeah. feel like our listeners probably. I think I've only gotten heard one it. or two in my entire, in our entire run. I think I might. It's hard. I'm not good it at getting the dad jokes. That might be the best chance you're going to get, though. As far as dad jokes go, Dig, let's get the hell out of here. Sorry, All right, let's, let's do it, my swimming. friend. My friends Wait. out there. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have something else to say? No, no, not oh, at all. I thought you said something. I'm web slinging my way out oh. of here. 
Uh, thank you all for your love, kindness, and support of our show. We're glad to be caught up or just about caught up on our end. Sorry about that again, although many of you won't even have noticed because you listen to these things out of order. But we hope you enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> again, I rented Spider-Man, and I think Dagan did too on Amazon Prime. I think it was $3.99, but it's available in other places on Voodoo, et cetera, so you can check that out. And otherwise, uh, keep supporting us on Patreon, keep voting on new topics and more, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Jordan Mittman, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Avaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Allen Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holt. Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeffrey Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler 526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Michael J. Sutherland, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travelis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubber, Ray Lagia, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Dan Parson, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Kyle Thomas, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinnison, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.